0: All right, we are back for our third and final segment. We oftentimes do obituaries in this segment. and We would meaning to do Muhammad Ali, but today's still not the day. But I want to do a non-obituary today, that of Olivia de Havilland. There's a wonderful article about her in Vanity Fair. Well, it was in the May 2016 issue. That's, that's just, just a great read. Miss de Havilland is not in the obituary uh, column yet. She's 100 years old and going strong. Still, to this day, a strong writer. She wrote a piece on Mickey Rooney a couple years ago that I think we quoted from on this program. The obituary of her friend from Hollywood days that was uh, a good read. And you might want to check it out. But uh, we've done very little science so far, so let's do a science article or two. And as usual, go to our favorite science publication, New Scientist. In this case, a piece from the April 16th, 2016 issue titled Cloud Control. Piece by Crate, Revilius notes that the skies are alive with microbes that could be hijacking the weather. Starts out by noting that back in 1978, David Sands was observing that in northern Montana, no matter what he did to treat his seeds and soil, his crop was riddled with blight. blight. So on a hunch, he hired a small aircraft and took to the skies. Once inside the clouds, Sands reached out of the window petri dish in hand, and there it was. He would collared his suspect. Not only that, he came to believe that his discovery would solve a long-standing mystery of what makes it rain. Sand's proposal that drizzle and downpours are summoned by microbes living in the clouds didn't go down well with atmospheric scientists. They focused on dust particles and soot, and they weren't about to listen to a plant pathologist. But the article goes on to note that discoveries in the past few years are making it look as if sands was onto something. It now seems as if the skies are teeming with microbial life, and recent sorties into the clouds have returned evidence that specialist bacteria do indeed turn the dial to downpour. There are even hints that some of the worst droughts in recent history were made by humans disrupting the delicate balance between bacteria and plants. This is fascinating stuff, and it sort of I think dovetails with this issue that we have the Juno spacecraft orbiting Jupiter, and there's some that have speculated that, well, you don't need solid ground necessarily to have life. There could be microbes living in the clouds of Jupiter. Now, no one seems to be suggesting yet that, you know, microbes can be living out their full life cycle, you know, up in the sky, but they may be spending more time there than we realize, and doing more up there than anybody imagined. Now it's been known for some time that you can use nucleators, ice nucleators, airborne particles that provide a nucleus around which water molecules arrange themselves into ice crystals. Which is why back in the Vietnam days, the U.S. military spent a lot of time flying silver iodide planes in effort to increase the monsoon rains and disrupt the supply of uh, materiel into South Vietnam. That, that didn't work out so well. And by the way, it was, it was Bernard Vonnegut, the brother of author Kurt Vonnegut, that I think first did, did these experiments with uh, silver iodide back in the 40s and 50s. Apparently, when Brother Vonnegut found out this was being used as, you know, a weapon of war, he was not happy. And this contributed, I think, to uh, Kurt's rather dim view of science advancing mankind, as exemplified in Cat's Cradle and other writings. At any rate, back to the microbes. It's a fact that salts thrown up from the ocean spray and mineral dust from desert winds can form these uh, nucleators up in the sky, but apparently they can't seat ice crystals above negative 15 Celsius, which is the temperature up inside half the clouds that form over land. They're colder than you think. By the way, for reasons that are still uh, not completely understood, you can super chill water down to something like negative 40 And until it's nudged to go the other way, it still remains in a liquid state rather than solid. By the way, you may be familiar with that super cooling effect of liquids. If you've ever like put a Coke inside the um, freezer a little bit too long, then when you took it out and when you pop the top, that little decrease in temperature caused by the release of gas, which is how air conditioners work, is enough to basically turn your Coke into a Slurpee. Yeah, it turns out the liquid was super, super chilled, but was still in a liquid state until it got nudged the other way. Anyway, this idea of biologically induced ice crystals took got a big boost back in 2007. Some environmental microbiologists, Cindy Morris, the French National Institute for Agricultural, and Brent Christner now at the University of Florida in Gainesville, got together with David Sands and started collecting fresh snow from around the world, looking for evidence of biological ice nucleating particles. They then tested their ice-making ability by placing um, these crystals in pure water and cooling it to see when it would freeze. Once they identified samples that froze at temperatures above negative 7 Celsius, they heated them to denature any proteins on the assumption this would deactivate any biological ice nucleators. When those droplets cooled again, they no longer froze above negative 7 Celsius, indicating that the vast majority of their ice nucleating particles were, in fact, biologic. And last year, an Alex Michard at Montana State University examined giant hailstones, which preserve at their center a record of the original ice catalysts. He came to the same conclusion. The hailstones were born when biological particles transformed water into ice. Further research by atmospheric scientists is suggesting that perhaps 40% of the particles in most rain-laden clouds are biological in in origin. Magazine published a chart showing various um, nucleating particles and at what temperature they they boost water into freezing. And the most curious thing about them is the higher end temperatures, because, I mean, once you get down to negative 40, whether it's Fahrenheit or Celsius, at that point the two temperature scales intersect well, then it will freeze, but it can actually freeze at as high as negative 3 degrees Celsius if certain bacteria are involved, in this case, Pseudomonas syringae. And there's some speculation that the Pseudomonas may learn to do this so that they can get a free ride back down to the ground in the rain or snow. There also is an implication here that this natural process may be disrupted by humans when they plant crop species. This may have a disrupting effect on this natural biologic process. There's a lot of details to be worked out here, but what a fascinating area to explore. You know, Radio Parallax does have a couple of regular contributors that are atmospheric scientists. We're going to have to bring them back and see what they've got to say about this. And someone else we definitely need to bring back on this program is our Southern Hemisphere slash Australian correspondent, Pamela Sue Taylor. I got to ask her about this harebrained idea they've got down in Australia to control an invasive fish by using herpes. I think we made passing mention of this some weeks ago, but it's true. The Australian government has announced a plan to release a herpes virus into rivers in a bid to wipe out the country's most notorious invasive fish pest. Since they were introduced from Europe in 1859... Carp have decimated native Australian fish populations, particularly in the Murray-Darling River system, where they now account for 80% of all fish. Good God. Anyway, some of the bright sparks down there have been investigating using biological weapons against the fish, and they've discovered a herpes virus that kills between 70 and 80% of carp populations, but hopefully does not harm native fish or other species such as frogs or turtles or sex workers. Now, we're not saying this isn't going to be of value or might not work up to a point, but, you know, some of you, some of you older listeners may recall an effort, I think back in the 60s it was, to control the rabbit population that was out of control down under. And in fact, a virus was discovered that killed something like 99% of the rabbits. The problem with rabbits is... If you're left with 1% of the rabbits, it won't be very long before the resistance strains build your population right back up again. And of course, when you kill all those carp, it's going to be something of a cleanup problem. All right, and speaking of uh, other guests we've had on, and I guess we're doing a lot of that at the moment, I'd like to refer back to our interview with James Fallon from UC Irvine about his fascinating book, The Psychopath Inside. And fast forward to the Discover Magazine issue from last month about... The man who invented the psychopath test, or, well, at least put together the checklist of 20 items that is used as a screening for psychopathy. The man's name is Robert Hare, and apparently his test is pretty reproducible and useful. Now, it should be noted that being a psychopath is no longer recognized in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM-5. In fact, by the late 1960s, it had replaced psychopathic personality with antisocial personality disorder. But that really didn't include, you know, a lot of hallmark psychopathic traits such as lack of empathy and callousness. And because it's done by vote, the DSM classification endures today. The piece in Discover notes that while most psychopaths are diagnostically antisocial, the majority of people who are antisocial are not psychopaths. Rico talks about how Hare came to um, put together this Checklist, he was working with prisoners at the British Columbia Penitentiary back in 1960. Notes that his primary job was assessing prisoners using available tools, which at that time ranged from personality tests to the Rorschach inkblot, all of which were scientifically unreliable, and he'd soon discover much less useful than the insights of the prison guards. And how anybody can still rely upon a Rorschach test that Bunch of pseudo-scientific blather to this day is beyond me, but it's still out there. But I digress. Anyway, Hare was uh, struggling, to say the least, for quite a while, but he started doing some experiments with physiologic arousal. The breakthrough came when he hooked up a sweat gland monitor to volunteers. They were all male. They were told that they'd receive a brief shock eight seconds into a 12-second countdown. The study, which was published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology back in 1965, revealed that while most criminals and controls exhibited significant physiological stress in anticipation of the shock, the psychopaths did not. And in a follow-up study, participants were given the opportunity to be shocked immediately or 10 seconds later. 80 to 90% of non-psychopaths and community controls chose to get it over with immediately. But only 56% of the psychopaths chose that, suggesting they didn't mind waiting for an unpleasant event. Anyway, it's a worthwhile piece, talking about uh, the history of Dr. Hare and how the concept of being a psychopath evolved, but I was kind of disturbed by the end of it. The article mentions some current cutting-edge researchers into this area who argue that psychopathy is not a disorder. It's what they call an adaptive lifestyle strategy noting you can pass on your genes by having one or two children and investing a lot into their well-being. But we know psychopaths' relationships are impersonal, that they favor the strategy of having a lot of children and then abandoning them. By this outlook, it's noted that this adaptation qualifies psychopathy as an advantageous, albeit deplorable, method of genetic reproduction, not a neurological disorder. Here goes out of his way, apparently, not to make any value judgments about psychopaths, He notes that from an evolutionary psychology perspective, the structures and functions of psychopaths' brains may be a little different, but they're properly designed for engagement in predatory behaviors. He goes on to say that my view is that psychopaths have the intellectual capacity to know the rules of society and the difference between right and wrong, and they choose which rules to follow or ignore. Said Hare, they might even consider themselves more rational than other people. A psychopath I met in my research once told me using his head instead of his heart gave him an advantage. He saw himself as a cat in a world of mice. What I find really terrifying about all this is they're going to start using brain scans and saying, look, this person just has a medical condition. So how can we hold Mr. Manson accountable for his actions? Anyway, we enjoyed our talk with James Fallon, and if you didn't hear it the first time, we suggest, dear listener, that you go back and review it for yourself. All right, when it comes to uh, talking about uh, rational decisions, there's a field out there called behavioral economics. A uh, previous guest in this program, Graham Smith, is a young student interested in this area where psychology meets economics. And exactly along those lines, there was an excellent radio program, which I think I should mention. Ira Glass does a great job with his show, This American Life, on national public radio. And the uh, June 24th, program in that series, number 590, had a couple of really interesting sections. In one, they went to the guy that works for Nate Silver, who's gained quite a reputation for being dead on in political uh, punditry, and asked him how it was that before all this electioneering started last year, he confidently said that Donald Trump had a less than 2% chance of becoming the Republican nominee. Personally, I think it all boils down to an example of somebody opening their mouth when they don't know what they're talking about. Nevertheless, it was a good uh, good section of the program, and I recommend that. But even more than that entertaining piece was an approximately 20-minute part of the program devoted to basketball. Well, not exactly basketball. In this case, decision-making in basketball. In this case, decision-making involved how it is you shoot your free throws. Author Malcolm Gladwell apparently took charge of this uh, part of the program and went around talking, first of all, to Rick Barry, legendary NBA player who famously shot his free throws underhand. I think in the one professional NBA game I've ever seen, I actually observed Mr. Barry do this a long time ago. Turns out he was awfully good at it. There were some seasons where he only missed like seven free throws the whole basketball season long. His success rate was well in the 90% range. Compare that to another basketball legend, Wilt Chamberlain. Chamberlain was famous for being a crappy free throw shooter. He perennially averaged around 40%. In fact, there was a strategy at the end of the game to foul Chamberlain, (laughs) let him miss the free throw and then get the ball back. Rick Barry, as a boy, had his father take him aside and said, Rick, you should shoot these things underhand. He said, Dad, they're going to make fun of me. But his father prevailed and said, your percentage will go way up. Well, the first game he was shooting the ball that way, guys in the stands were razzing him going, hey, you shoot like a girl. But Barry said he heard the guy next to him say, what are you razzing him for? He's making him. And indeed, Barry's strategy after to say, I don't care what they say. I'm making him. What can they do about it? Now, at one point along the way, Wilt Chamberlain decided that maybe he should try this. In fact, his percentage went from the 40s up into the 80s, but he hated how he looked. These underhanded shots just were not manly, so he went back to shooting overhand like everybody else in the NBA, and his rate dropped back down to 40% again. Barry apparently tried to get Shaquille O'Neal to the same thing, and O'Neal told him, I'd rather shoot zero than shoot underhand. The point of all this is people are not logical in decision making. They may reject something that gives them a decided advantage, and I think we're going to have to leave it there today because it looks like we're just about out of time. I would note that this program is produced by Edward McMillan, and you have been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your faithful host, Douglas Everett, and we'll see you again next week.